because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. I'm joined today, as usual, by Don Watkins in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hey. And Stefan Henna in Germany. Hey, Stefan. Stefan, are you there? Hello. Yes. All right. I thought I, I thought, uh, well, it might be that, uh, I thought there was a wind or solar outage actually, which <laughs> my usual suspicion whenever power flickers or there's any unreliability. Okay. So I, I looked at the stories you guys have for today and, um, I'm interested in getting to as many of them as we can. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on and, and a lot of, a lot of insight I think we can add to these issues. So let's start off, Don, with your first story. Yeah, so the UN just released a new report and the kind of high-level summary of it, uh, according to the New York Times, is that humans are transforming Earth's natural landscape so dramatically that as many as one million plant and animal species are now at risk of extinction, posing a dire threat to ecosystems that people all over the world depend on for survival. And the kind of conclusion that's drawn from this is that like this is a major threat to human beings. And so uh, the Times quotes a, an ecologist saying, we need to build biodiversity considerations into trade and infrastructure decisions the way that health or human rights are built into every aspect of social and economic decision making. And uh, I think a couple reactions to this. Um, one is uh, I have not gone line by line through the entire report. In fact, they haven't released the detailed report yet. This is just a summary. But in general, these kinds of the sky is falling claims. Um, I'm a little skeptical going into them just because it is. It, this has happened for over 60 years that we're just told there's some emergency. The solution is to stop human progress by limiting human freedom. And typically what happens is, you know, whether it's acid rain or the ozone disappearing is you get the the problem um, either never actually emerges or turns out to be completely minor. And part of what I think is really revealing or interesting about this report is that the whole conception that they have is that human beings are essentially dependent on nature, or at least that um, it ignores or minimizes the fundamental need to transform nature that we talk about. And so this is just one example of many. I mean, this really runs throughout the report, this idea that we are taken care of by nature and now we're trashing what takes care of us. The New York Times says in passing, wetlands purified drinking water. And it doesn't even raise or acknowledge the major thing that has purified water and in fact made it possible for us to have clean water for billions of people. And that's human action, including the use of fossil fuels. And I guess the, 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 that whole perspective of dropping out with human, human beings contribution, like if you're, if we're hearing that we're destroying the earth and the ecosystems and therefore impairing our own survival, you would think that, okay, things, human survival, human health, human access to clean water and clean air, these all must be going down dramatically. And yet, as you catalog in the moral case for fossil fuels, and as others have cataloged, like things have actually gotten tremendously better, particularly in the places having the most impact. So uh, 
I don't want to dismiss every particular claim of this report, but I'm skeptical of the high level solutions because I'm skeptical of the basic approach. Yeah, th- when when these things come out, it's it's really as if they were written from the knowledge base of 5000 years ago because you know, 5000 years ago or maybe even 2500 years ago, you would rightly think of human beings as very much dependent upon the natural environment, what people will call the ecosystem, or probably more accurately, ecosystems. And it's true. I mean, you know, we, when there was enough water, then we were more likely to have food. And, you know, when there's a drought, a whole bunch of people die. And when there are storms, you can't really cope with the storms. We're, we were completely at the mercy of and dependent upon the non-human environment. And, but then we did something, which people will often call industrialization, but we can also call it, we created a human environment. There really was no uh, distinctively human environment. There was just human beings and then, you know, the rest of nature. And what we did is we created a human environment that allowed us to have way more resources with way more reliability and then way fewer threats, um, you know, because we could insulate ourselves from the, you know, inadequacy and viciousness of the rest of nature uh, from the perspective of human life and human flourishing. So when I hear a story like this saying, oh, well, this species is going to die and this is going to do this, and then human beings are just going to be helpless. No, no, no. Human beings used to be helpless when we depended on nature in this way. And then the thing that we should be really worried about is anything that would make us helpless by by dismantling the human environment. And the, you know, the number one way of dismantling the human environment, the number one threat is decreasing or eliminating our access to energy and chiefly through fossil fuels, since that's our main source of access to energy. So we've we're not in this primitive state anymore but they're advocating policies that would bring us to this primitive state but they they give nature credit for our advanced state insofar as they acknowledge it because if you acknowledge reality you have to acknowledge okay we have an unprecedented level of human flourishing today let's understand that and you cannot attribute that to the beneficence of nature it's not like you know, our resources increased 10 or 100 fold because nature became nicer or because the wetlands became nicer. And even by their account, we've supposedly been insufficiently nice to the wetlands. So we should get, be getting punished. And so they keep having this narrative, oh, well, it's going to get really bad, but because they don't acknowledge the invention of the human environment. If you don't acknowledge the invention of the human environment, you cannot understand human flourishing and you're going to make really, really destructive policies. So within the context of if you acknowledge the invention and the the glory of the human environment, from that perspective, you can ask, okay, is there anything um, we're doing and building and maintaining that environment that has long-term threats because, okay, it's doing something to the atmosphere or there's one particular species. But but then, even then, we the same means by which we built and build and maintain the human environment, which is you know, using a lot of technology powered by a lot of energy to make those better, those are the same basic means by which we would deal with any any drawbacks or any negatives. So for instance, you know, if, if we have an issue with CO2, we'll try to figure out how to capture CO2 or try to figure out uh, 
a really good substitute for fossil fuels that doesn't emit CO2 or how to do, you know, how to deliberately cool the planet if we need to. But it's all going to be from the perspective of the indispensable thing is, is a human environment. Stefan, what's your first story today? Uh, the International Energy Agency reports that renewable energy capacity additions stalled in 2018 compared to 2017. So the report reads, capacity from solar, PV, wind, hydro, bioenergy, and other renewable power sources increased by about 180 gigawatts in 2018, the same as the previous year. So it still grew, but it's not this exponential uh, explosive growth that uh, allegedly is necessary to, you know, bring the world to a zero carbon economy, which is one of the big goals, uh, you know, set out by the IPCC and and also the I believe the International Energy Agency and and many countries and uh, organizations. So Wait, I have a question about the data. So what's what's the number figured? Was it in gigawatts or gigawatt hours? In gigawatts, it's capacity. So, so they're yeah, just that's... mixing together hydro capacity and solar capacity. Yeah, that's the uh, aggregate statistic. So they are they are lumping together all these like biomass and hydro, which are reliable, solar and wind, which are not reliable, and and so on. Do you happen? I mean, because my guess is that there will be more, relatively speaking, solar and wind, which means that less actual capacity is being added. Yeah, there's. There's actually, uh, they have a more detailed um, breakdown regionally, so I'll get to that. But um, the issue is that in some areas it grows, in some areas it stalls. And uh, so they are blaming uh, all kinds of things for that. Um, but yeah, of course, solar and wind add a lot of capacity, but they are not actually reliable capacity. So to compare that with something like coal growth or natural gas growth, is, uh, would be super unfair because, you know, one gigawatt of natural gas is, of course, uh, much better than one gigawatt of solar, which only produces like 25% of the time or so. Um, okay, so the International Energy Agency's Executive Director, Fatty uh, Birol, said, thanks to rapidly declining costs, the competitiveness of renewables is no longer heavily tied to financial incentives. But that is then later contradicted uh, by, in the same press report, reading that governments can accelerate the growth in renewables by addressing policy uncertainties and ensuring cost-effective system integration of wind and solar. So they're they are giving this mixed message, you know, uh, uh, solar and wind and renewables um, overall are getting rapidly uh, cheaper. And that's where all this growth potential is. But apparently, this doesn't come to fruition. And uh, I, I find this interesting that the uh, International Energy Agency would uh, sort of blame Chinese solar policy on the decline in installed solar capacity. But at the same time, it says, oh, it's already so cheap, so it gets installed in all these developing countries in Africa and Asia. So it's, uh, I think there's more politics in this than, you know, empirical, uh, objective empirical uh, information, because what we know is that renewables, in particular solar and wind, which are the fastest growing overall for decades, 
and uh, you know those which are supposed to be uh, the highest capacity by something like 2040, 2050, uh, they are mostly driven by policies, by financial incentives, by mandates like re the renewable portfolio standards and so on. And this is what drives the capacity increases of these. And as soon as some large, uh, you know, manufacturer and also uh, consumer of solar panels like China changes the policy a little bit, the incentives or the, the tax structure or whatever, immediately you can have a breakdown of the sales of these solar panels. And that's, uh, yeah, I... I for all the narrative that we get about, you know, disruptive technology and renewable energy and so on, we mostly see that this is driven by policies and taxpayer money and mandates by governments and not by a really competitive energy source. Yeah, I was just, I was thinking the same thing because you hear this, you hear the buzzword of disruption. You also will often hear the buzzword of exponential. And it's so interesting that even some at least seemingly scientific minded people will they, what they'll do is they'll just point to some kind of growth curve and basically say well this is going to continue indefinitely so solar has you know it's doubled and doubled and doubled and so it's just going to keep doubling and doubling and yet that is just incredibly uncommon and obviously can't be sustained at all um over time, I'm just not going to keep doubling every year. I mean, that would be amazing, but it's, it's, it's not going to do that. But just there's this idea that, oh, if we're, if there's this early growth, there's an early rapid rate of growth, then that rate of growth is going to just continue exponentially. And that's just not the way things usually work. I mean, you have this phenomenon with Moore's law um, in terms of processing power. And so that is a, that's a remarkable thing. And there's certain reasons why that exists in that context. But just to take any rate of growth of anything and say, oh, this is going to take off. I mean, I, it's even possible that with with failed products, you have, okay, well, it sells very little the first year and then a little more the second year and then twice as much the third year. And then, oh, wow, we're on an exponential path. And just to assume that, oh yeah, that's that's going to that's gonna work out is, is super, super far-fetched. And then if you look at the nature of it, yeah, these are these are getting installed very strongly correlated with different kinds of incentives. And then you see when a country gets frustrated with them, uh, you see just declining investment. What, what specifically happened with China? So China uh, changed the policy uh, and so sort of the mandate structure on the local level, um, which was a primary driver of uh, solar installments in China, so China is the biggest consumer of solar cells in addition to being the biggest manufacturer. And, you know, that happened last year and immediately the uh, installed capacity that was originally projected uh, didn't uh, come true. So essentially it's, it's a central government uh, decision not to install that many solar panels. And the reason in the e, uh, International Energy Agency report or in the, in the, in the press release was that they are try, trying to cope with the intermittency and trying to uh, integrate the, the existing solar capacity better. So that's, you know, that's what we have been said before about uh, a cost driver in solar and wind, the intermittency, the integration into the power grid, that's a cost driver. So the, the price per solar cell or per wind turbine isn't all that relevant for the overall system cost, of course. 
All right. I want to talk about a, a new topic, but a related topic, and it's, it's a question for Stefan. What is the, can you talk about the issue of fires and solar panels at home? You've mentioned this to me a couple of times and I've read a couple of articles. I'm just, I'm curious. I, I, I almost never hear it mentioned. I was talking to a good friend of mine last week and, and who's pretty savvy in general, and he hadn't heard it mentioned. So can you just talk about this problem that we never hear about? Yeah, so uh, problem is, of course, relative because I don't think it's a very, very uh, common occurrence uh, similar to, you know, Tesla electric vehicles are not burning all the time. It happens, but it's, it's relatively rare. So and when you have a solar roof installation, the problem is that these solar cells are constantly generating electricity as soon as light shines on them. That's how they work. That's a photoelectric effect. And you can't really shut them off. There is no, no off button or, or off switch that you can, can pull and trigger and make them not do that. So even in an emergency when, you know, either there's a, there's a fire at the home or even if the electric um, installation creates a fire, the problem is that you have a, have a sort of power generating unit on the roof that you cannot shut off completely. And so if the firefighters arrive, uh, sometimes the best option is actually to let the roof burn in a controlled manner because you cannot just, you know, put water on the roof and then have firefighters rescue people inside the house or something. So that complicates things a lot. So there are, there are sort of, you know, in experts' uh, circles, there are manuals that mention this kind of, of hazard that you have electric shock hazard when, you know, you put water or foam on the roof of a burning house with, with the solar installation. So it complicates things. And it can also start fires. Uh, I actually don't have a good statistic on uh, about how often that happens, but it's it's something to consider when, you, when you're planning your, you know, your roof uh, with a with a home installation with a rooftop uh, solar installation. That's definitely something to think about and uh, be aware of. Yeah, well, in in California, they are unfortunately planning what everyone's roof should have with new homes because they're mandating solar panels, or at least that's that's the last I heard on the subject. And it's just remarkable how this doesn't get discussed. I mean, this it's a it's a serious thing to increase a fire hazard in your home, and yet, and and the the cause and effect is fairly straightforward, and yet it's just not mentioned. It's not considered an important story, and yet, and particularly, it's even more dangerous if you don't know about it. And yet, there's just no interest in the actual downsides of these because these technologies are so overwhelmingly means of attacking fossil fuels and and. Uh, passing certain policies versus actually accomplishing something good, and there are other things with solar panels. Uh, you know, I've, I you hear of, or maybe you don't hear of enough, but people who have solar panels often they will have animals nesting under the panels in different ways, and it'll you know, cause all sorts of noise and all sorts of issues there. And it's just not mentioned. Of course, then there's just the maintenance and the, the amount of time that people are spending. I remember at lunch in the last year with somebody who's a very successful finance person, and he's telling me about solar panels, and he had installed them, and he was disappointed with the performance, but then he talks about going to dust them and all this time he's spending and all this. And I'm just thinking, you have so much earning power, and yet you're wasting so much time 
with these stupid solar panels. I mean, this is why this is one of the great things about decentralized power. We we don't have to we don't have to do the maintenance on our power systems, and we don't have to have all of these uh, difficulties. Like we don't have to worry about the fires involved in generating power, which tend to be a bigger deal than you know when you're dealing with all kinds of power you're more likely to have different kinds of accidents. So it can be good to be away from them. And yet there's uh, none of these benefits are are mentioned. So it's the existing power system, the grid has has tons and tons of advantages. And when we're talking about different kinds of alternatives, certainly when you're encouraging individuals to adopt them, let alone mandating that they adopt them, there needs to be uh, honesty, not just this this fantasy of, oh, the, the um, you know everything is everything is wonderful. I I think I remember uh, Bill McKibben had some line, and I cannot. You know he said there's no such thing as like a solar spill. It's just a sunny day or something like that. Well, like, okay, but under the right circumstances, you can you can uh, with a sunny day. You know you you can that can cause a, you know a very destructive fire that could cause your house to burn down. That could cause pe- more people to get injured than would have otherwise gotten injured. Also, this reminds me, Stefan, I think you had a point. Uh, we got to go into this. Uh, there's somebody who's been writing me for the past year or so, um, an interesting guy named Mark Rausch. And uh, writings, uh, writing and sort of trolling, there's a little bit of overlap because he's just been kind of writing publicly. But I, I do want to get back to him on some of his claims. And he's his basic idea is that there is... Um, Basically, that ethanol got screwed over in some way that prevented it from being the leading energy source of civilization, and that if only it hadn't been for some sort of uh, conspiracy a long time ago, then ethanol would just be uh, everywhere. And but I, I think he had some line. Stefan, uh, correct me on this, but it's it's something like you know if we spill ethanol, then it's just happy seals or something like that. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, right. So, yeah, he he's re- really big on how uh, gasoline and, and lead gasoline of the past has been really toxic and killing so many people. And, you know, you got oil, oil spills and wars over oil in the Middle East and so on. So this is this big narrative. And then he says, well, with ethanol, you have none of these problems. You have domestic production and also it's super clean. And if you spill ethanol into, you know, the ocean or the river or what, all you get is a, is a happy seal. And then he has this, you know, the seal on a, on, a, on, a, on a beach, you know, being happy. And this is, of course, not true because we know that ethanol kills animals and it gets, you know, if you have a tanker full of crude oil or tanker full of uh, of uh, ethanol, I guess the ethanol will kill the seal actually faster. Interesting. That would be good to good to look into. For the new version of the book, I'm going to do some more research on ethanol because I'm uh, and biofuels in general. I'm, I'm curious. They are, in some ways, they've become less popular, but. But there are, I, I know, for instance, in the realm of jet fuel, there are talks of low carbon jet fuel, and we can do this using biofuels. With biofuels, there's just this inherent point that I've never heard refuted, which is just that it is a real, it just tends to be very resource intensive to grow calories, like to grow calories uh, of any kind, you know, but, but particularly to grow food calories. And then with most of these biofuels, you're essentially growing food 
and then using it for fuel. Uh, and you're growing food and then processing the food and then using it for fuel versus with oil, what you're doing is you're taking a naturally plentiful, concentrated, stored source of energy and you didn't have to grow anything and you you didn't have to process it. I mean, you have to process it some, but it's already processed into quite a potent form. And you know, it's different than corn, right? Corn, there's a lot more distance between corn and fuel than between you know crude oil and and fuel. So uh, just we'll talk about this more in the future. But I'm just curious, Stefan, is that still your impression, or is there some good argument they have against the the um, you know resource the resource intensity of growing food and then transforming it into machine calories? Yeah, I think it's it's still like just the process. It's the material intensity on one hand, but also like a growing season, right? If you have to wait three months until the raw material reappears, and then you maybe can plant it once or twice a year, that already in itself is a big cost factor. And of course, you need need uh, agricultural land for that. You know, maybe not exactly the same quality, but often exactly the same quality. I think it's like 40% of corn production in the United States goes into these biofuels. So that's a, that's a lot of agricultural land that's used. It wouldn't have to be used otherwise. And so there are a lot of factors that are just, that just inherently make this more expensive. And I, I don't think there's a, there's a good fix for that. Maybe, you know, GMO, GMO crops, and uh, you know, better fertilizer, something like that. Better technology can improve a bit on that, but they are just you know underlying processes that make it really expensive. Good, good point. One, one more thought on that. Uh, but yeah, so it's a, it's a great point about the growing seasons, which had not been top of mind to me at all. But one, one broader point, which is, which is the just the difference between the potential and the actual, and this is a very broad point that Ayn Rand talks about a lot in different contexts, but in the context of energy and economics, it's just important to recognize there's a difference between the actual ability to produce cheap, plentiful, reliable energy in all of its needed forms versus the claimed potential ability to do it. And part of what happens with an actual ability is that you've solved all of these problems. You, there are just so many things that, let's say, the oil industry had to solve to reliably deliver jet fuel so that we can fly around all over the place. And we have no idea that you know, there's just so many things that went into that and that were difficult and just different kinds of systems and logistics and processes and coordination. I mean, who knows what went into it, but the idea is they they figured it out. They have a working system. But then when somebody talks about a potential, they don't have to have a working system and they don't have to have engaged with all these problems. They just have to have a kind of, you know, a couple of plausible sounding things like, oh, there was a conspiracy and these oil people had influence in this legislature. And, you know, Joe Bob is powering his, his uh, truck with this stuff and, you know, this this other truck could be converted this way and there's an experiment in a lab with this kind of thing but it's not actualized and and because it's not actualized it hasn't there there are there are bound to be innumerable problems that we as onlookers can have really no idea of the extent of and we know that they can often be deal breakers because most ideas are bad i mean both most ideas are not workable in the sense of being economically competitive so our our protection against 
bad potential ideas, which is most statements of potential tend to be bad compared to what the actual thing is, our, our protection against it is what Ayn Rand called the separation of state and economics. So the idea that different people can have different ideas about what's the most efficient way for people um, to produce things. And then, but people are free to compete. And if you have an idea, then you can try to outcompete somebody, but you can't impose your bad potential idea on somebody else. And so what we see with so many of the unreliables and then also the biofuels is people want, they want the ability to impose uh, these potentials on people and they make these very sketchy arguments for them, but they're not, they're not required to actually demonstrate them in reality. And then they're, they're demanding that, well, first we're going to ban the actual thing and then don't worry, we'll make the potential work. And like, no, you won't. And no, you don't have a right to. Don, what is your next story? We've talked a lot in past episodes about how New York has barred natural gas pipelines and how this has cut off the Northeast from natural gas supply. But there's actually another blockade going on, and this is from something called the Jones Act. And that's a protectionist law. It's about a century old that it demands that cargo that's transported between U.S. ports has to be on U.S. built ships and the crew has to be an American crew. And the problem, or at least one problem with that, is that there aren't enough of these ships that comply with the law in order for us to get liquefied natural gas from the American South to the Northeast to help deal with the fact that they don't have pipeline capacity to bring in natural gas. And Massachusetts, in order to get around this, actually had to import natural gas from, would you believe it, Russia instead of the United States, which is just this like haven of natural gas. And for a while, it was looking like President Trump was considering waiving the Jones Act, but a, reportedly has changed his mind, although there's nothing official on it. And there's this concept that uh, economists will talk about called Baptists and bootleggers. And it's that you can often get a, a unity um, or a unified front between people who are ideologically opposed or committed to something, and then people who just want to cash in. So you, for instance, this is a the deprivation of uh, natural gas to the Northeast is you have the green movement that just wants to stop energy, but then you have these crony businessmen in, in the US shipping world who, in order to protect their uh, prices without having to compete, are holding back our ability to deliver energy and that it's it's very hard to overcome that in a situation in which people aren't concerned with freedom and instead you get these different pressure groups vying for their special restrictions or special favors and so i think this is uh i would like to see this waived I, but i think more importantly just having a more broader commitment to freedom so that you're not having to fight these fights in this kind of piecemeal fashion is going to become very vital because the Northeast is really suffering. They're very vulnerable, um, particularly we're, we might have time to talk about grid resiliency. Um, they're very vulnerable right now and a bad winter along with some pipelines uh, breaking down could be really catastrophic and the, the I think it, the important long term game here is to is to um, protect their freedom to actually get the energy that they need. 
I had never heard that term Baptists and bootleggers. It, that is, I mean, that, that I think applies very, very broadly in that you have people with certain very strong ideology, particularly, you know, in the case of the Greens, we're talking about something that's, that's anti-industrial, but maybe more relevant is, is statist. So it, it necessitates power concentrated in the hands of the government. And then that is always going to, that's always going to invite corrupt people who want to use that power for their own gain. And so the, the, one of the obvious kinds of uses of the power will be to take resources from some people and give them to other people or, or restrict people's freedom, some people's freedom in a way that at least somewhat benefits other people. And thus you'll get all of this, this manipulation. But so one, one aspect of this that I, I, want to highlight is that I think often the the Baptist part of it comes first. That is, the, the ideology creates a context where it's considered moral for the government to gain a whole bunch of power, and then there are opportunists who will try to do their best to exploit that. But it's, it's when sometimes people just say, oh, it's money and it's corruption. But one of the questions is what ideas made possible that corruption? What 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 gave a moral sanction to that corruption and really what gave a moral sanction to the power that then the corruption inevitably flows from. Yeah. Well, and one other point to that, cause I, I agree with that a hundred percent, but the other thing is I think there's a tendency to think that there are no Baptists. In other words, like often I think critics of the green movement will portray them as, Oh, Al Gore is just trying to get a lot of money from this global warming scam or something like that. But that I think the the fact is that like it, it, what it really does is it prevents you from showing the destructiveness and ultimately the evil of bad ideologies if you just dismiss them as oh they're they're always just a an insincere cover up for money making like I think it the, like there are people who really do not value human flourishing and if you don't recognize that and address that as a premise then you're not going to be able to actually get anywhere. Yeah, there's a good a good lecture by Leonard Peikoff, who's the um, heir of Ayn Rand and was her top student and is a philosopher, still alive. And he had a lecture called The, the Role of Philosophy and Psychology and History. And one thing he dealt with is what's the relationship between different ideas and different motives? So I don't know if that's available in a book anywhere, but if you look up The Role of Philosophy and Psychology and History, I'm sure you can at least listen to it somewhere for very cheap. It's online for free, free, Alex. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Stefan, what's your next story? Uh, my story is about uh, increasing liquefied natural gas exports to Europe. So one of the benefits of the U.S. shale boom uh, comes to Europe, although Europe is largely against uh, fracking and uh, tiled oil and gas production. So interestingly, uh, since 2016, almost uh, by 300%, the, the uh, natural gas exports from America to Europe have increased. And uh, this is primarily because of uh, some lobbying effort by the U.S. administration, um, because in direct competition to that uh, American natural gas is the Russian natural gas. So you might have heard about Nord Stream 2, the big pipeline project that seeks to uh, deliver natural gas from Russia directly to Germany. And um, 
So now the German government has sort of uh, opened up another option and is supporting um, a liquefied natural gas import terminal in Germany. So this gives us some options, because, and that's important geostrategically because we know that Russia uh, uses its state-run oil and gas business to gain leverage over other countries. So it's uh, it has been very aggressive against Ukraine, where there also was a hot war, of course, and other countries. Poland is uh, very concerned about this uh, business with, uh, with energy from Russia. And so this is a really good option. I don't know if the government involvement is, is a really good deal for all of us. So uh, you can see on the American side, the Trump administration has lobbied uh, the European Union and particular countries to you know open up the markets for that and also support infrastructure, which is, you know, semi-state run or financed by, by governments. And on the other hand, you have some, you know, indecent policy in Europe uh, regarding production of natural gas and oil, and also uh, this, this trade deal between Russia and uh, European countries with natural gas and, uh, yeah, primarily natural gas imports. But it's... Uh, it's a it's a really good option, and it's we are over here in Europe where I uh, reside. We we get some benefits from the uh, U.S. shale boom, and, and that's a positive thing. One thing to mention is that the liquefied natural gas, of course, is a bit more expensive, uh, mostly because uh, liquefied natural gas has to be liquefied. It has to be be cooled and and compressed to become a liquid. And that's much more expensive than using a pipeline from Russia to get the natural gas in. But uh, so it's supposed to be a 20% additional cost of the gas. But, you know, uh, considering the uh, geostrategic importance of having this option, um, I think it could be worth it. But of course, the green uh, activists... Um, particularly in America, want to stop these exports. So there's a keep, in, a keep it in the ground alliance. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, something like, um, I, I forgot the name of the uh, top organization there, but it's like water safety or something like that. So they are, they are demanding that, that these exports are actually banned between America and Europe. And I, I don't know what they are thinking because I don't think natural gas from Russia will be uh, somehow greener or less CO2 intensive. Um, I can't imagine that. So in terms of just natural gas, what's the shale potential in Europe that they could get way cheaper gas uh, than the Russian gas? Um, I don't have any concrete numbers and I don't think uh, the potential is fully uh, known because uh, for example, in, in Germany, I know in particular because I'm a German, and I, I know this from from news items. Uh, there's a moratorium on fracking, so you could do explorational wells in Germany, but nobody's going to apply for that. So we don't even know what the real potential is. There's some potential. I think there's uh, definitely something in northern England. There's something, some potential in Germany. I don't know about the other countries, but there there must be some uh, some at least opportunity to find out. But even the exploration business isn't really developed here. It's so hostile the environment. Got it, Don. What's your next story? So I was 
reading a Washington Post uh, story where that headline announced the first solar powered town. And I was really curious because, I mean, unless they were going to sleep at 5 p.m., it would not be very plausible that this town could run solely on solar. 5 p.m. That's not going to work very well either. The angle of the sun is not going to be too hospitable. But anyway, yeah, continue. Yeah, and so I looked into it a bit, and turns out it's a town of uh, called Babcock Ranch. About four hundred people live there in Florida, and you know the bunch of the town buildings have solar panels. And but the major thing is that they have this uh, solar field that's uh, apparently has the power to energize, uh, capture enough energy to power five or uh, fifteen thousand homes, and the to to be fair the the quote from the um Florida Power and Light spokesperson sort of gave away what was going on she said that when the sun is shining folks are getting emissions free energy we can't say exactly where the electrons go but they're going to Babcock Ranch and beyond so what's really happening is that this solar field is actually going into this whole Florida Power and Light grid and that is how residents of this town are actually getting their energy. And so I went and looked up the Florida power and light grid, and that is 70% natural gas, 23% nuclear, 4% coal, 3% purchase power. And at least as of December, 2016, which was their latest numbers, no, uh, no percentage of solar. So if you look at the specific numbers in terms of capacity, there's 23, uh, 22,305 megawatts of capacity um, uh, for that entire grid. And Babcock Ranch, the solar energy center, provides 74.5 megawatts of capacity or 0.3% of the capo- total capacity. And that's that's not yeah, I, generation. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even, yeah, even though that's strong there, I would, yeah, I wouldn't use that. Like, just because even it's, yeah, so it's like 0.3%, but even like 0.3%. Yeah, so just, we got to, figure out better consistent terminology uh, for this uh, capacity stuff. Uh, yeah. So basically, the I mean, the bottom line is that this is a town that has spent a lot of money on solar panels that actually don't give it any usable energy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just even why not just take it as, um, you know, a giant wind turbine? Like I can, well, not that I have a house, but or that I own. But um, that I'd be allowed to. We're like, yeah, if you build a giant wind turbine that, I don't know, costs a ton of money on your property. Yes, obviously, you can generate more energy than you use in um, in some sense. But then then there are issues with, well, then that's not everyone can do that because the wind turbines need to be spaced out. Uh, so it's it's just this it's sort of a caricature of the opposition and a caricature of themselves because the whole idea is no, the question is, can you produce plentiful power on demand using the technology? That's, that's the game. So as I've said before, it needs to be self-sustaining or self-sufficient solar. And if it's not, then yeah, oh great. You can generate a whole bunch of unreliable power that then is a pain for everyone to deal with and doesn't actually solve the problem that you claim you're trying to solve. Stephen, I have a, quick technical question, which is just, isn't it wrong to say when they say we can't say exactly where electrons go, but they're going to Babcock Ranch and beyond? Is that really a good description of electricity? (laughs) I don't think so. So electricity, of course, is very complicated because we are dealing with an electromagnetic field. 
which doesn't behave like a liquid or a gas or something like that. So it's uh, it's very difficult actually to you can't measure where the electrons come from and, and where the charge flows and so on. So it's it's really you can just think of it as a big pool of some physical unit and then you get a fraction of that. But isn't it isn't it the um because the idea of this, I think, is people think it's just like like electrons are kind of shooting through like drops of water. No, that's, you know, through that, a pipe. That's not that's not how it works. So they are sort of. I'm not a physicist, so it's very difficult to explain. And for a physicist, it would be difficult to explain. I think so. It's just they are sh- sort of, I think, swing, swinging in the electromagnetic field, and so the the charge runs through that. So I don't. I don't I can't really explain the the basic physics of that, but it's very complicated and it's not easy to measure or, or see where it flows. So actually, so when the when the solar panels produce a lot of energy, it's actually that a lot of these electrons are or of the charge is sort of pushed out of there because you have a have a sort of uh, potential difference between the generator and the consumer, and then if you're connected to the power grid and you you know, the, the generator is generating this electricity. It actually flows out of there, in a sense. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's very difficult. You can't, you can't measure that. I, I don't know anyone who could measure that, maybe under laboratory conditions. I don't know. Don, what's your next story? That was mine. Oh, you passed the test. <laughs> Stefan, what's your next story? <laughs> so I've noticed some contradictions in the new French energy, uh, green energy policy. So uh, late April, France has uh, sort of uh, announced a new uh, green energy law, um, and that will demand that uh, the entirety of France will be carbon neutral by 2050. And uh, compared to the current um, goal of only uh, quartering the emissions by that point, and um, it wants to phase out coal and uh, decrease CO2 emissions across all sectors. Um, but interestingly, one item was that it will delay the phase out of nuclear. So currently, the law demands that by 2025, the French uh, nuclear generation, which produces something uh, above 70% of French uh, electricity, uh, will be reduced to 50% of French electricity. And uh, now the new law supposes to uh, delay that and uh, bring it down to 50% by 2035, 10 years later. And uh, I find this quite interesting because it is essentially admits that the renewable generation that is supposed to replace nuclear and coal and so on, cannot actually do that. Because I, I think the, the French government realized that if we are reducing nuclear power, which is sort of uh, uh, the bread and butter uh, power generator, then we cannot do that, then we cannot replace that with solar and wind because they are intermittent and, and that would cause a lot of problems uh, integrating that and keep the reliability up. And now they are like pushing backwards the nuclear phase out, which is interestingly a centerpiece of French policy. I, I don't 
know why that you can explain that by a sort of uh, rational policy to reduce CO2 emissions because nuclear obviously, especially already existing nuclear capacity would be a really good base to start from if you want to reduce CO2 emissions in the power sector. But you can only see this as uh, through the lens of, of politics and a public that is uh, sort of misinformed by green ideology and in addition to reducing CO2, also wants to get rid of nuclear power. So France is sort of the leading country in the world with, with nuclear power generation, and it absolutely makes no sense for them under the goal of CO2 emission reductions to you know just retire its reactors. I don't, I don't see any, any good reason for that. And the French government essentially said, okay, we can have 2025, that would require us to uh, install more gas-fired power plants and that would ruin our CO2 emission uh, uh, CO2 emission goals. Yeah, and it just this is a pure example of how the standard that's being used is not any kind of pro-human standard. It's just this idea of being natural. And so renewable is considered natural and nuclear is considered unnatural. So even though nuclear is an actual way of lowering CO2 emissions and producing a lot of power for a lot of people, it is it is being attacked and they're prioritizing attacking something that's actually doing the job that they say needs to be done all over the place that's being done so little which is essentially co2 free power and then they're they're going to go to the thing that's failing to do that all over the place don uh let's take one more story from each of you don what's your last story today uh sure sure so this is um one of the concerns about intermittent renewables is you know often we talk about their the way in which they make energy expensive but i think a more catastrophic problem or at least an equally disturbing one is how vulnerable they can make us make us to blackouts and brownouts particularly as we become more dependent on them um and it, it, this is basically the issue of resiliency how able is the grid to deal with adverse events like severe weather and I was reading a uh, former Power Hour guest, Judith Curry, on her blog was summarizing a presentation by Vice Admiral Lee Gunn um, from the Navy, who was talking about grid resiliency. And he actually argued that wind and solar can improve grid resilience from drought risks. And so he makes this point that droughts can be a major contributor to electric power disruptions because you need, for instance, water from rivers and other sources to cool coal and nuclear, and that uh, renewable sources don't depend on water and so that they can augment power generation during times of drought. And I was curious um, what I, I had never thought of that point. And so I was asked you guys what you thought of it. And Stefan had some really interesting things to say about it. So uh, uh, eager to hear you share those with uh, everyone else, Stefan. Yeah, so, so one interesting uh, thing there was um, that this uh, diversity uh, concept was was mentioned. And so you, you want an essentially all of the above uh, strategy for power generation. I, I don't think that's true. I, I think you have plenty of examples where, you know, we talked about France, where you have one source of power, you know, very reliable reliably uh, 
generating power and uh, you know making the system work. So you don't you don't want you don't necessarily want diversity, but there could be situations where you know, particularly in in dry areas where you don't have cooling capacity, and if your power plant requires cooling from a river or a lake or or even the ocean. Um, then of course that's that's an important feature built into that, but that's in the planning phase of the power plant that has to be considered. So if you don't foresee that, for example, a large river that's cooling your coal or nuclear power plant um, might dry up in a year in the future, then of course you will have a big problem and you, you can run that power plant. But there are ways around that, of course. You can, you know, in the planning phase, you can uh, use a different cooling system, something that recycles water and, you know, doesn't evaporate it, but recovers a lot of the water vapor and cools it down in cooling towers and so on. And, and you can see, particularly with, with nuclear, that is being built right now uh, on the Arabian Peninsula, right? So that's essentially a desert region. And, uh, you know, you can, you can use maybe the ocean water, but you can have very dry conditions and you can essentially devise a water system, a water cooling system that works even under extreme conditions. And, you know, that's only talking about the current sort of light water react, standard reactor that we see being built or, or already uh, built today. But future technologies definitely uh, don't, don't suffer from that, particularly in, in nuclear, where you essentially can... can uh, run it without a, a big water body you can you can have a different different cooling system that that maybe work with air or something like that or smaller reactors that don't have that much excess heat and so on and uh, yeah it's it's more of a planning issue i think it's not so much that oh we are if we build this type of power plant we definitely will run into cooling problems no it's a it's a planning problem if you can foresee certain weather conditions uh, in the future, then you can say, okay, we need this kind of cooling system that deals with that. And maybe that's a bit more expensive, you know, than just having reliable water supply in certain areas. But it's, I, I don't think that's a, that's a deal breaker. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish we were in an energy conversation where solar and wind were being raised as in in the context of, okay, these technologies have a lot of limitations, but where could they be a net positive? You know, or is it good to use solar for extra air conditioning in the middle of the day in Dubai, that kind of thing? And then, you know, solar for certain off-grid uses. Um, and that that would be a fine thing, but we're so much in the context where these are being these are being positioned as mass substitutes slash replacements for fossil fuels and for nuclear. And there, the number one thing that needs to be said is that that is not the case. That is a baseless claim, and that they're they've proved so far, at least, incredibly bad for for baseload power. And there's every reason to think that's going to continue for a long time, if if not forever. So the the first thing that needs to be said about these is just that that the whole solar and wind movement is a movement that's not driven by human flourishing. It's driven by this renewable ideology, which is really a species of green ideology. And then beyond that, you, know, you have to look at, yeah, when when could these actually be useful? But then you, you can't make the mistake of 
of acting like, oh, these these other technologies that we use now, they have the they're just completely at the mercy of certain kinds of weather and climate patterns. And so I think I appreciate Stefan, you pointing out that it's not just that we're helpless with these technologies to deal with those things. And in general, just with climate and weather these days, there's just this expectation that if something, if, if we operate with it a certain way and then something changes, then our lives are going to get worse because we're going to stay static. And that, that's just a false view of, of life because almost nothing in our lives is static, particularly in a modern society. One aspect of a modern society where there's so much freedom and so much opportunity is that the the is that your your environment in, in a much is really the human environment is so, so dynamically changing in so many different ways. You even think about, for instance, where you would live, and where you live is going to be dependent upon, unfortunately, political factors. But even without political factors, you know, economic factors, and oh, this industry was needed. You know, the buggy whip industry was needed, and that was located one place, but then that's no longer useful industry and so the opportunity is somewhere else so you move with people and there's just also it's it's a the whole human environment is already a dynamic thing so we're used to changing in all sorts of different ways to not doing things the same way and thus different kinds of changes in climate that even if they were anywhere near as significant as people are saying those are the kinds of changes that we deal with all the time uh, an example i got from ayn rand was I think I got it from her. I think George Reisman also uses this, but just the, the phenomenon of the, the population of England tripling in the 1800s in some very short window of time. You think about what is it like to adapt to that? That's a lot more it's a lot more dramatic than the kind of sea level rises we see or different storm pattern changes we see. And yet there's this there's this false view of human beings as these static beings. And and really I think it, it connects to the view that they're parasites. And thus, just the, all these wrong expectations, even for a given, a given change in nature, in the rest of nature, there's just this totally false view of human beings will just stupidly do the exact same thing repetitively and then drop like flies. All right, Stefan, one more story. What do you want to talk about? Uh, I want to talk about uranium quotas in America. And so... Uh... The Trump administration, of course, has recently made headlines uh, with bailouts for struggling coal and nuclear power plants. And now two American producers of uranium fuel, Energy Fuels and EuroEnergy, that's UR, apparently for uranium energy, have filed what's called a Section 232 petition with the U.S. Department of Commerce to investigate the impact of uranium impacts on uh, national security. So... Uh, they allege that, uh, you know, uranium is a strategic commodity and, you know, that's important for U.S. power generation, of course, but also for the strategic defense of America. And therefore, it deserves some special protection from foreign competition. And in particular, uh, you know, producers like, like Russia and uh, I think Uzbekistan is who they mentioned. Uh, they run, they have state-run companies that provide the uranium fuel, and um, they might play politics with that and have a big stake in American uh, power generation and also um, defense issues there. But I looked into the numbers, and what I found curious is that yeah, it's true that only seven percent of uranium supplies 
for power plants came from the United States domestically. So a lot of imports for the U.S. power reactor fleet, uh, nuclear reactor fleet. But the majority of imports actually came from Australia and Canada. And uh, I don't think you can argue that Australia and Canada will uh, threaten the strategic security of America. So since the 1980s, um, domestic production in, in the United States went down significantly. But I think it's a competitive market, actually, for the fuel. And I don't see a real strategic problem there. So I, I believe this is tr purely protectionism. And therefore, I think we should oppose that. All right. Makes sense. I buy it. Not not much to to add there. So good good topics today. Thanks, thanks for sharing those, guys. Audience, if you'd like to get in touch with us, our designated point person is Don. You can email him at Don at industrialprogress.net with any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail. You can also email him if you would like to book one of our speakers, including me, Don, or Stefan, for your next event. And you can also message him if you are um, an organization that would like some help with its messaging and taking advantage of our different consulting services. To get on the mailing list, we'll have a new episode out on Wednesday, and basically every Wednesday, a new issue of the, the newsletter out on Wednesday. Go to alexepsteinlist.com and subscribe. That's it this week. We'll be back next week with some more great stories. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.